Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike and Davina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Dean Hadjikristu, and if you're not familiar with Dean, Dean is a recording engineer, producer, mixing engineer, who has worked with tons of great bands in the metal world, including bands like Parkway Drive, Obey the Brave, Protest the Hero, Intervals, Auras, Four Year Strong, and a whole bunch more. And this is a really fun conversation that we have today. In a lot of ways, the path that Dean has taken throughout his career runs very, very similarly to mine. And so it's a bit of a mess with the head kind of situation for me, where as he talks about how he grew his career and how it advanced, there's so many similar situations that him and I both went through as far as the schools that we went to, some of the opportunities that came our way, um, just some of the different types of careers that we've done outside of working in the studio. Yeah, it was very, very interesting. And to be honest, it was a bit of a mindfuck for me a little bit, but that's what kept this conversation conversation so fun and Dean has worked on so much amazing music and like I said he is really well known in the metalcore scene so in this interview we get into a lot of his process for recording metalcore music and how he approaches things like recording guitar tones and getting the low end of the guitar and the bass to work well with each other how he gets vocals to sound nice and upfront in a metalcore mix what he does with editing all sorts of stuff. So if you're working on heavy music, I think you're going to get a ton of value from this interview here. And even if you're not working on metal, I think there's still a lot of great topics that we cover here. So lots to learn. That said, let's just jump right into it. Dean Hadjikristu, how's it going, man? I'm doing well, man. Thanks for having me, dude. Thanks for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. For people who might not be familiar with who you are uh, or what you do, can you give us a little bit of background on who you are, what you do, and ultimately how you got into everything you're working on these days? Yeah, sure. So, like, uh, I've been engineering and mixing records for over 20 years now. And, like, growing up, I was a drummer and super into drums and uh, played in some bands, mostly, like, skate punk, but even a little jazz and some concert band, like, in high school and things like that. And I remember making a couple records with uh, the bands I was in on, like, 2-inch tape and even ADATs, like, back in the good old days. And I kind of like, felt a spark uh and I was kind of just gravitated to the studio and the process. It was just super cool. And I was definitely that annoying guy. I was just badgering the engineers on staff and asking all sorts of questions and just generally probably being really annoying. But uh, I guess I got, actually got into recording on my own when I got uh, the mighty Digi 001 interface oh, back, yeah. uh, back in the day. Yeah, <laughs> halfway through the, the music industry arts program I was in at Fanshawe. Oh, you, went, you uh, went to Fanshawe as well. So, same here. Oh, no way. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I spent three years there. I did, uh, did the, the normal two-year program, and then I did the postgraduate third nice. kind of digital applications program. So that was cool because it kind of got into like post-film and mastering kind of stuff like that. So yeah, that's great. I didn't know you were there. Really good yeah, times. Yeah, small there. world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, when I got, when I got that interface, uh, you know, just having it on my own and being able to use it as long as I wanted, I started experimenting by recording my own band and, you know, doing silly things like programming beats and recording and adding other elements to it. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't half bad. And uh, when I actually graduated, I did work at some local studios briefly, but 
like, it just didn't feel right. And, you know, there's political reasons and things I won't get into, but I think I just prefer, preferred to do my own thing, you know? So I just started making like really cheap, uh, recordings for friends bands and slowly word got out. And next thing I knew I was like booked solid tracking for bands and like the punk scene and for a few years, you know? So, and keep in mind, this is like happening in my bedroom in the basement of my parents' house. So we're talking <laughs> like super DIY punk type stuff, uh, which doesn't sound that crazy now, but back in those days, uh, recording records in a bedroom wasn't really a common thing, you know? So, and I should also add, like I had, uh, I should add that my parents, like I had the most supportive parents like in the world. Cause they just put up with punk bands and metal bands coming in and out <laughs> of the house. Uh, but yeah, they were, they were amazing. But meanwhile, my brother, um, he was in a band called the fully down and I would record their records and, uh, they ended up getting signed to Fearless Records with uh, the second album I engineered for them. And they went on to do some really cool stuff and some solid touring and stuff like that, which I actually joined whenever I could. And I'd do front of house for them. And we did like, you know, a bunch of warp tours. And I remember doing like three warp tours in a row and just coast to coast US tours, like New York to LA and everything in between. So it was a fun experience and I learned a lot. And, uh, you know, it was cool how like, realizing how like visceral like live sound was but it kind of showed me how much i missed the studio and how it's just that's where i kind of belong you know mm -hmm. so when they started kind of killing it i was just like okay this could kind of work you know word got out uh that my brother's band i did their record and things like that so i was like this could really work so i just started investing into more and more gear and just started kind of getting better at it and things started just taking off and all these like awesome talented bands started coming from all over Canada and even from the U S so that was really cool. And, uh, yeah, I guess fast forward a few years later and eventually my wife and I saved up for a house. And over the period of a year and a half, we built a nice like project studio with floated floors and decoupled ceilings and all the nerdy stuff and everything was soundproofed. And with the help of like really awesome friends and family I actually finished it and it was ready to go. And once I was in there, you know, I just really started learning the environment. I just dove right in and learning how the rooms are reacting and just picking up more, more and more pro gear. And, uh, and yeah, I was just lucky enough to work on some really cool records and do post-production and mix for like short films and recording dialogue for animation shows, which by the way is like so fun. It's probably the most fun I ever had uh, <laughs> in the studio and just, just doing anything that involved audio, you know? Yeah. Since then, uh, I've gotten to gotten the chance to work in some top-notch facilities as a visiting tracking engineer for, you know, a few of the high-profile projects I've gotten the chance to be part of. And so it was definitely not like the traditional way of coming up, you know, like through the whole big studios avenue. I didn't, you know, like starting as an intern, working up to a runner, an assistant, blah, blah, blah. But it worked for me. And uh, actually, I often think about this crossroad I was in uh, right after graduating from Fanshawe. I was offered a job as an assistant engineer at Warehouse Studios in Vancouver, uh, which is an awesome studio owned by like Brian Adams and just a legendary place. So it was obviously tempting, but quickly realized, you know, how expensive uh, the cost of living in Vancouver was versus like what an assistance wage would be and, and actually how many years I'd have to put in before I could actually be a, a full engineer. So unfortunately, I had to turn it down. But funny enough, 20 years later, I actually... Ended up working there on a record for a few weeks. So it was 
rad to be there 20 years later, but uh, sometimes it's kind of wild to wonder how things uh, would have turned out if I went in that direction, you know? Yeah, it's man, this is hilarious to hear because I think you and I live very parallel paths. Like I, everything you're saying, I went through the same thing. And, and and we also look alike too, so that's kind of funny that like <laughs> yeah, both super handsome. <laughs> it's like, what's happening here? We're just like different years. Uh, no, but uh, but I totally relate to all of that. It's like I I did the same thing where when I graduated, I just worked out of wherever I could, took on any experience I could. I also did recording for cartoons and stuff like that as well. Amazing, so, you know, yeah. got all that got all that all that experience. Um, and I and I totally get what you're saying that like there's there's that traditional path of growing up and having the internship and all that stuff. And I think that there's definitely a lot of people that get into that world and thrive in it. But for me as well, I, I, I mean, I guess I did it briefly for a little bit and then realized quickly that like, there's only so much room I can grow in these studios when there's like someone who owns a place who also wants to be the head engineer and this and that. Like, you know, sometimes you have to kind of just... For me, it was just like I'm gonna just pave my own path and just like work with as many bands, get get my feet wet in as many different things, and and uh, you know see where it goes. And and ultimately, I think when you take that approach, things kind of find you, and you you realize like where you're meant to be. I think so, 100. percent I mean, I think it boils down to just like trusting your instinct. You know, like when when you're that young and someone puts that in front of you and being like like, do you want to work at this incredible facility where like Slayer and like like just huge top-notch artist arts obviously so tempting to to go for it but like you said there's that little voice inside of you that just didn't feel right and i don't know maybe it was just like the the super punk rock upbringing i had that that diy kind of value that you just want to just go against the grain a bit that kind of uh set me off in that direction and and to be honest like now that i've uh you know been around the block a few times and kind of seen you know, having gone to these huge studios, like as far as like some part of me does kind of, you know, uh, feel jealous about not having like an awesome engineer take me under their wing and teach me, uh, teach me their tricks and kind of, which is an, an amazing way to go. Don't get me wrong. Having seen how, how toxic some of the like hazing culture almost is for these poor interns and assistants and runners like the, the amount of stuff they have to put up with just to get a shot at that as even assistance chair to maybe get into the engineer's chair is unbelievable. Like, like honestly, it's to the point where like sometimes I'll walk into these huge facilities and like the, the assistants and, and, and the runners and the staff, like they're scared to you to look at you in the eye, you know, cause they've had so many <laughs> and, you know, and, and being like the kind of people we are when we walk in sessions, we're, we're just, we're all on the same level, you know? So we treat them that way. And it's, and it's wild how they're just like, you could just instantly see the joy in their face that we're just not another basically prick that just treats them like dirt, you know? So I think that's also weighs in sometimes to me making a better choice. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny again, like same sort of idea. Like you talked about getting an, an opportunity at the warehouse. I had a, a similar opportunity with another engineer out in Vancouver as well. And uh, yeah, it was the same thing. Like, you know, we talked about having me work for him and it, it, I, I think I've told the story on the podcast before, but basically the gist of it was, you know, I, I kind of said to him like, okay, if I'm going to move out to Vancouver, I know it's expensive. Like, you know, what's, what's the, uh, what are the hours like, you know, how do I, you know, I want to make sure I know I can afford to live out there. And, and he, he had basically summed it up and said, uh, you're going to work 20 hours a day for me, seven days a week. And, and I was like, 
that's that's got to be a joke, obviously, or an exaggeration. And he's like, no, you got another four hours in the day. You'll figure out how to afford to live. It's unbelievable. Like, what the yeah. fuck? Like, so, so yeah, it's, it's that hazing kind of culture that uh, I, I think that it's just a very old school way of, of the industry. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that these days it's just so much easier to start to do things on your own. And if you are going to have that DIY hustle mentality, you're going to find the bands to work with and you're going to find those opportunities and um, ultimately... Yeah, find find where you're meant to be, and exactly you know, build that word of mouth for yourself instead of having to build up your your ranks in a studio if you even can, and then hope that from that point people start to recognize you and you become a name, you know, and, and then you can break free of that and all freelance. You know, it seems like freelancing kind of ends up being the end goal for a lot of those people anyway. Yeah, so I exactly. to start there. Yeah, and I don't want to dwell on this anymore. But uh, one last thing I'll say, I just it just popped into my head. Like I remember being at. I'm not going to mention the studio, but a massive studio. And literally the engineer wouldn't let the runner sit in a chair. Like she could not have a chair. It was a 12 hour session and she couldn't have a chair. And we, we know the band and I like, like legitimate rock stars would be given, like this guy would be giving her his chair because it was so outrageous. And then we tell the engineer, like, what are you doing, man? Like, just let her take a seat. He's like, I never got to sit when I wasn't a runner, you know? So it's like, continually perpetuates this this you know it's people being bitter and feeling like they need to now like assert that same dominance over someone new and just kind exactly. of perpetuate that cycle it's like or you could just be a pal and just break these ridiculous you know traditions and and be a good person you know anyway yeah. that's enough yeah, on no, that. no that's cool yeah I, I, I agree with that but uh but yeah it, it's uh I, I, again, I think we, we share a lot of similar similar views on this and grew up very much in the same sort of uh, trajectory, I guess. <laughs> Although you're having much more success with it than I am. So. Oh, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> it, it takes some time. Um, but yeah, man, that's awesome. So so ultimately, you've been working on a lot of different projects. You've been fortunate to get you know that one project that then leads to more projects. And then you know, it kind of always spirals that way, I guess. You know, it takes, mm-hmm. takes those... Uh, I don't know what you would call them, but there was like a focal, there's almost like a, a turning point with with the artists that you work with, where once you've worked with an artist of a certain caliber, then it just kind of opens the floodgates and, you know, kind of perpetuates from there. Um, so I'd love to talk a little bit about your process now. Like you're, you're obviously, these days you're doing a lot of like heavier bands that you record. Um, and so I'd love to talk a little bit about that because I know we've got a, a large audience that listen to this podcast that are working on heavier music. Um so I'd love to learn more about your process with uh, tracking heavy artists. And uh, one process, one thing that constantly comes up, I, I get asked a lot of questions about it when it comes to heavier stuff, is vocals. And obviously, in any genre of music, recording vocals is going to be super important. You need to make sure that it's super clear. Um, but but heavy music is kind of a, a weird genre in the sense that you've got like the singers and then you've got those screamers. And it's like, you know, there's, a, there's two drastically different ways of approaching it. Um, and so I'm curious to know, like, when it comes to recording aggressive vocals, like, do you have any, what's your normal go-to setup mean for that? Like, what's your normal go-to setup look like for that? Sure. I mean, at my own spot, my my default chain was always uh, either a Peluso 2247 LE, which is kind of like a U47 type mic, uh, or an SM7, for depending on the volume or, you know, tonality we're trying to achieve. That always would go into a great river mic preamp, which is kind of like a modern Neve design. Uh, absolutely love that pre. And then, you know, just if it's not broke, don't fix it. Always into an 1176 <laughs> and then just into Apogees. And that's always worked out for me, whether it's, uh, you know, clean vocals or or screaming vocals. Like 
And honestly, I'm not uh, I'm not too shy about just absolutely hitting that 1176 super hard. Like it could be seeing like 25 dB of reduction and it sounds good to me. So, and, and it honestly just makes it sound so finished right away. And then down the road, me or the next, uh, or the next mixing engineer who's picking up from there has a lot less work to do, you know? For sure. Yeah. It's interesting. You were talking about like slamming the compression. Cause I, I think that that's, it's definitely a big part of that sound, but I think a lot of people are also very hesitant to slam compression, especially on the way in. Cause you know, they don't yeah. want to like, Exactly. That's how I was when I first started, I think, you know, and there's like, don't do more than three to five dB or whatever, you know, but honestly, the more I just got braver and braver, uh, it, it just sounds good, you know, and the old uh, motto, if it sounds good, it is good, works out. <laughs> I mean, vocals are just such a dynamic uh, thing to record that it, it doesn't even sound, it doesn't even sound choked when you, you, you can, it could be fairly transparent, even with uh, a machine like the 1176, but I mean, I've gone to other studios and I've I've done chains where I'll, I'll uh, you know I'll go into an eleven uh, a CL one B and then go into an eleven seventy six or vice versa or using a one seventy six like the retro. Uh, I, I love chaining compressors and and using kind of a slow one just to kind of uh, I mean it's an old oldest trick in the book so I'm not uh, reinventing the wheel here by any means but uh, when I started like experimenting with uh, with you know um, you know using multiple compressors uh, is actually really cool. And uh, yeah, I'd recommend trying it, you know? Yeah. So when you're, when you're applying compression to your vocals, then what is it that you're ultimately listening for to know how much you, how much you should have? Cause sometimes three dB of compression is all you need. Right? 100%. Yeah. This isn't a rule. We're talking about like some heavy music, you know, and like some, and I don't always record heavy music, so I'm not always doing this, but if we're talking specifically about, uh, you know, Fairly heavy music. I think for me, it's just the energy it adds, and uh, and and just using the compressor, like obviously for its level control, but just for the tonality and the timbre and the character it gives you. You know, like you can. And honestly, for me, it's also realizing that when I was doing that much compression in the box later, it just wasn't as gluey sounding. So for me, that was my one chance. Like. I never, I never ran a studio where I'd be going in and out during mixing. So I'm mixing in the box. So for me, it's kind of my opportunity, my one opportunity to get that mojo. And so I'll just do it right away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. And I, I agree with you. I'm glad that you brought up the, the other aspects of the compression sound other than just like level control. Like, you know, tonality is, is definitely a big part of it. And especially with like an 1176, they, they have a character that they add to it that can make your vocals sound even more aggressive than they actually are. So um, there's, there's benefits to sometimes slamming something for the sake of getting its character. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm careful when it comes to like compression on drums, like I'll almost never... Uh, put compression on on like direct mics. I'm, I'm not shy about uh, track tracking like room mics with uh, with a whole whack of compression on them. But you know, uh, I've made the mistake growing up of you know over compressing a snare drum, for example, and just running into some absolutely horrible leakage issues and um, like so things like that. It's not it's that's not about not being brave. It's just about learning lessons and and then knowing when to go hard and when not to go hard. You know, but. Things like room mics, uh, yeah, I'll just I'll just blow them up and never look back. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> it's even like that with uh, preamps as well, right? Like I think you know that that traditional way of learning how to gain stage things is like you should never see red, you should never clip your preamps. But sometimes clipping your preamps actually gives you a really cool character as well. And I think you know when it comes to like those Neve style EQ or Neve style preamps. The kind of the Neve sound is kind of a driven sound to some degree, you know. Like when you when you slam it, you get all that extra character that you wouldn't get off of something like an SSL or API or something like that too. So I think you have to, um, kind of like you said, you kind of have to to learn from your lessons. Like try it one time and see how far it gets you, and uh, you know, learn learn from that mistake sometimes too. <laughs> exactly, it's super source dependent. And and funny, I do actually remember the day. Uh, I was, I had this awesome band coming down from, uh, Boston called Four Years Strong. And like, I remember like a couple days before they came up, I was like, man, these guys are actually like a pretty amazing band. And I, I like really want to kind of step my game up. So I actually went and forked over the money for this great river preamp. Uh, and, and I remember being so excited that, that when I get it, I was hitting thing, everything so hard because those actually have an output as well as an input control. Mm-hmm. So you can, you can, you can drive the input and then back off the output. So you don't clip your converters and then you can come up with some cool combinations of, you know, going light on the input and heavy on the output transformer or whatever. But the point is I remember getting it and tracking vocals and I was absolutely hammering these vocals because I was just so excited. Like the color sounded so great, you know, and, and like going back and listening now, it is just absolutely fried you know like i fried those <laughs> vocals and it's cool it worked it worked for the time but like going back now like i guess what i'm trying to say is you have to like pick and choose when and where and how much you're going to do it and uh not not just because you have a eve or whatever x preamp uh you need to drive it all the time you know and through the years i just realized okay like i, I like the sound of when it hits this red light or no, but not the second or third red light or whatever. And I would learn, I would learn the gears limits and, and what my preferences were. And like, for example, you know, I was doing the same kind of thing with the kick drum and just started nuking the kick. And like the kick started sounding so fluffy because the low end was hitting the transformers too hard. And, and it actually sounded worse than, you know, but then the snare sounded really good when I actually clipped a little bit, the front end of it. So then I just realized, okay, like, when the great rubber on the kick, I really like the output all the way open and the gain down and vice versa on the snare. So, but it's, it's just like that with every, every piece of gear, you know, like same with everyone, you know, when I first got my APIs, you know, they just sounded so good busting guitars up into the red. And then I just realized like, okay, like I'm recording like distorted guitars, like there's only so much more saturation it needs, you know? Totally. Yeah. There's a, uh... Yeah, there's that limit for sure, especially with distorted guitars where everything's already sounding compressed coming out of the amp. Like, yeah, what what more do you actually achieve by slamming it, if at all? You know, like what what do you get out of that? So, um, yeah, that's an interesting point, and I think a good lesson to learn there too that uh, you know don't start experimenting with your gear like crazy if it's brand new right before a session. Yeah, one hundred percent. Safe that first session and get through that. <laughs> Very good lesson. Yeah, and and that's awesome. You worked with Four Year Strong. I love that band. They're, they're just, yeah, they're, they're awesome. They're incredible. Man. Yeah. Um, in terms of vocals, obviously with with metal, I mean, metal is one of these interesting genres where there's so many inf- instruments fighting for the same frequency ranges, and you know, like even when it comes to vocals and like screaming vocals, like those are fighting with like distorted guitars and and all that kind of stuff. Or even and and even trying to get that low end clarity with the vocal that's even fighting the low end of the guitars and the bass and all that kind of stuff. So 
As far as getting screamy type of vocals to sit well on top of a mix, um, do you have any tips for for achieving that? Like you mean in a mixing context? Yeah, in a mixing context, for sure. Sure. I mean, yeah, for me, once it's just all about getting the guitars out of the way, really, you know, and just knowing when to let the vocal win the battle and, and the vocal might not be there all the time. So let the guitars speak when they need to and just kind of tuck away, you know, sometimes that's just using, like, I like to use like dynamic EQ. So like side chaining the vocal to the rhythm guitar bus and just having it tuck out, you know, the one to four K range when the vocal hits in. And then when the vocal disappears, it, uh, comes back up and then it's more in your face or just you know doing letting the leads like leaving some room from the leads into into the guitar bus so that when the lead comes in the rhythm loses a bit of mid-range and i think all those kind of things add up you know that and just an absurd amount of automation really but i think having like a really balanced mix to begin with is, is the big battle like it like i when i start a mix like i know a lot of people start with the vocal and like for me i i start with the drums and and work my way up from there so i don't even get the vocal in until the the music mix is feeling pretty good and then i think by that time you know you can anticipate if you're overdoing some of the frequency ranges uh and then when you put the vocal in you just address them you know like it's always easier for me to kind of have like a full bandwidth sound and then just kind of carve things out when I need to, as opposed to, you know, letting everything develop and then, and then having like a, a, you know, like an over exaggerated mid range, you know? For sure. Yeah. I'm with you on that setup of like mixing from the drums, you know, doing all the music first. Um, Cause I agree with you. I I think it's like, it's one of those things where there's more music than there is vocals in most mixes so the music has to be exciting first and foremost and then you know once you have that energy there musically then then you can pick your spots where the vocals are really supposed to be adding the energy and maybe they strip it away from some of the other other instrumentation at that point but like you know you kind of create this bed of excitement with the instrumental first and then build on top of that yeah exactly but but it's always like heavy music is just it's a it's a tough gig man like you have so much stuff competing for all this very narrow bandwidth and it, it it takes years to kind of i think why well, i couldn't come up with an even cooler answer for you because it just kind of happens instinctively and uh and i gotta say like having mixing and and recording heavy music for so many years whenever i get like a gig that's like a pop song or a country song to mix it feels so easy you know <laughs> it just because there's just not that much saturation to fight with. And, and it just, and honestly, it, yeah, exactly. And it just makes your job so much easier. And for me, having done heavy music for so long has probably shown me how easy it is to do everything else, really. <laughs> I know, I, I've said it so many times on the podcast before, but like, I would love to mix a country record because I feel like, I feel like I'd be really good at it because of all my experience in the heavier stuff. And I think country is kind of going in that direction now of like being bigger um but still has the arrangements of country songs are still so there's so much space built into them which is which is really cool absolutely don't get me wrong like those those engineers are top notch and i'm not i'm not taking any way anything away from them but it's just for me just you know getting a, a song that's not filled with you know 14 screaming high gain guitars is just 
automatically feels so nice. But th- those those Nashville guys and those LA guys doing even like pop music is just they're incredible. Those engineers. So I'm not taking anything from away from them. It's just working on heavy music has its uh, you know hardships. Yeah, I think every genre of music has its own challenges, and and the deeper you get with certain styles of music, the the more of those challenges you're going to experience and the more you're going to have your troubleshooting Rolodex going, you know, of knowing what to do and what situations. Um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I agree as someone who also works in a lot of heavy, heavier music, I think it is, it's a very challenging genre because there's just, it's everything at 10 all the time. And then there's like so many layers to it, especially these days with like a lot of these metal bands adding a lot of like other production elements and strings and orchestra, like all, you know, keyboards and all sorts of stuff in there. It's just like filling as much of that space as possible. And so it's, it's, it's sometimes hard to figure out where to slot everything in and make it all work together. Sometimes, sometimes you do have to just like cut stuff just to free up that space. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Especially like you mentioned nowadays, it's become super hip to have like, you know, 46 synths playing in the back as well, you know? (laughs) So it's just, uh, here we go. Here's another thing to squeeze into this tiny little tube. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I'm working on a mix right now with the band, and, and we've been going through our revisions. And they're a heavier band that's got like yes, yeah, strings and synths and all sorts of stuff. And they're like, we want it to be like massive rock guitars. And I'm like, cool. So we made the mix. That, I made the mix that way. And then it's like, cool. Now we can't hear the piano. And it's like, well, the piano is kind of irrelevant amongst all of this. Like maybe we should cut it, except for the one interlude where it's like the focal element, you know. And so, so sometimes you have to just like. You know, you have to be creative and prioritize what's supposed to be the most important thing in that mix. Exactly. And I think that's why the fallback is kind of doing like these dynamic kind of cuts and stuff, because it's the only way to get a hundred things always playing at the same time and kind of making sure there's clarity. And yeah, it's just wild. It's that classic example of like whenever you're doing mix revisions and you give everyone the chance to provide their notes and everyone just wants to hear themselves louder. And then it's like, well, if we make everything louder, then nothing is loud. Oh, man, 100%. I cannot even count how many times I've been. I mean, now I'm mixing a lot more uh, on my own, which is, uh, you know, like remotely mixing, uh, which has huge advantages. But back in the days where it was always an intended mix session, the like the amount of like circles you go into, you know, just like the drummer, just like turn up the kick and snare. And then the bass player, like, well, I can't hear my bass. And then guitar players, like, probably, like, now the guitars are just not cutting through. And then the vocalist, like, yeah, but, like, with my vocals, gone now. So, and literally, <laughs> we just ended up, where if I had just turned up the, the monitor volume, like, a few dB, we ended up the same. It's just now it's hitting, <laughs> and now it's just hitting the bus compressor too hard. And then yeah. you just got to work your way back. Yeah, but it's funny. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, musicians were such, it were so ego driven most of the time that we just want to hear more of ourselves, except for singers. I find singers are actually the only people that will often say, turn it down because they tend to be the most self-conscious of, of their instrument, I guess. That's true. I've seen, I've seen that go both go, go both ways. So yeah, that's true. for sure. Yeah. Sometimes you get the person who knows that they're a really strong singer and it's like, this has to be in the forefront or I'm the band leader or that kind of thing. So, yeah. um, yeah, it makes, makes for fun times. Um, so also speaking of like working on this heavier style of music, um, obviously, guitars are a crucial part of heavier music. Um, and so I'd love to learn about your approach to recording great metal guitars, because when I listen to a lot of the stuff you do, it, like the guitars sound huge, they sound tight, and 
it's there's a bit of an art to that of making sure that you get guitars that sound big but they're not overly beefy and then at the same time they're not overly fuzzy and you know fighting the vocals and all that stuff in the top end range there too so um i'd love to know about your approach to recording guitars as well sure i mean you know it's basic but it really does start with uh, a good source you know not to rehash the the same things we've always heard but it's no lie you know like a good guitar and a good amplifier is number one and more importantly the the person holding it you know like i've had the same exact guitar chain set up and literally the person will pass the guitar to an, another person in the room to try that part and it, the tone absolutely falls apart you know but uh yeah i guess back in the day i was always you know recording cabs uh, i'd say in the last like eight or nine years i actually haven't even recorded cabs since uh Kempers came out. Yeah. Uh, so I'd say like the, the, so the bulk of recording is I've been doing with uh, Kempers, which is a godsend and, and not just because it's easier to, to get going, but it's just so much more creative when you can just instantly change tone and be like, okay, this bridge, let's, let's just do this octave with an orange head, you know? And just like when, like back in the day, you'd, you know, on a record, you'd have like one or two or maybe three heads and you'd kind of set them up and, you know, you'd be like, okay, this works for this and that works for that. And, but now I just love being able to add so many cool textures and, and just, and then I'll just experimenting and trying like weird soft tech heads for, you know, just things that you'd never, ever be able to do before, you know? So that being said, I try to, you know, impart a bit of color. So usually I'll take the Kemper line out and, and then try different, like the line inputs on different pre's as just a kind of a way mm. to get a little bit of analog sauce on the way in. So, so sometimes I'll, you know, r- run them through the API 512C. Sometimes I'll, I'll uh, run them through the Neve style pre's and just, I think it just helps to just get a little bit more glue, you know? And then, and then even for leads, sometimes we'd strap like, you know, tube compressors on leads, just kissing it. And I find that that works really well. And other than that, I guess it's just, I like stacking different guitar tones. So, you know, sometimes we'll, you know, we'll have like the main, the main rhythm tones going and then the choruses will just stack some completely different tones on top, you know, and just do four takes instead of two or sometimes six, you know, and then sometimes it'll just be lighter gain settings or, or just a bit more top end or, or just things like that, you know? So Mm -hmm. for me, it's about, adding different textures together uh, and coming up with a tone that pretty much had never existed before, you know? And then I know a lot of people like to split amps and record them the same way. And that's cool. And that's a super valid way to do it. But I actually like the directness of not starting to blend, like not having any, you know, phase issues with combining different uh, sources from the same one. And then you're just getting that extra bit of weight from the extra, the overdubs, you know, just having like, another guitar just if it's done right and super tight but then the problem is it adds so much more work to to make sure that everything's super tight other than that i guess just as far as the relationship with the bass i think i think a lot of times the the rhythm guitars even for super heavy music need a lot less low end than what people kind of think you know so i think it's important when you're first getting your tone to actually be listening over a nice almost finished bass tone and that and that'll really give you a better impression of how it's going to translate because i mean even nowadays it's like kind of weird to me because 
I feel like in a lot of modern band production, like it's almost kind of backwards and like they're doing the drums last because they have like pre-programmed MIDI drums and, uh, or just sometimes they're, they're tracking the guitars with, there's no bass in it and, and just things like that. Where for me, I guess just being an older lad, uh, that always did drums, bass, guitars, you know, I think it's one of the reasons that I like going that way because when I get to guitars, I kind of have established the low end and, and how it's kind of, live within the song and that way when i put the guitars in i'm not gonna overdo it with the low end for example you know for sure yeah it's interesting it, it's definitely something that i have also changed a lot in my process like i'm at now at the point where I'll, I'll i always record drums first and then i do typically record guitar second and bass third and i find that it allows me to occupy the low end a lot clearer to me with with adding the bass after the fact but at the end of the day i guess it doesn't really matter because yeah if you're doing one versus the other you're just trying to make them work together and that that's really what it comes down to just making sure that they're not fighting for overlapping frequencies and all that kind of stuff right yeah there's literally no wrong approach for it it's just i think for me in the past you know i've been in the room with people and we have tracked bass after guitars and and the whole time people would be like man these guitars are so thin and i'd just be like trust me dude let's just wait and get the bass in here and then we'll kind of <laughs> reassess it and if if we if we really feel the same way we'll just add some low end to it or worst case retrack it but uh yeah again there's no there's no wrong way to do it and, and in fact some people will completely disagree like i've seen top tier mixers add all sorts of like 60 hertz to guitars and it seems to work for them you know which is just something i would t- typically not be doing you know yeah <laughs> yeah it's funny like there's there's just, there's so many different ways to achieve the same goal so you know, just got to You kind of have to figure out what works for you and, and uh, just stick with it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, definitely. There's so many ways to arrive at literally the same endpoint. It's actually, it's almost comical, you know, like every time I start a new mix, you know, like for years and years and years, I always stress, like, am I using the, the, the right plugin or the, the right channel strip or, you know, and then so I'd always do experiments and be like, okay, on this mix, I'm going to use nothing but this, like, whatever, X plugin. And then on the other one, I'll use nothing but this one. And then, you know what? They sounded almost the same because it's it's your experience and your instinct that's going to tell you what to do. It doesn't really matter, you know? And and I know a lot of us obsess about, like, you know, this new game changer plugin or whatever. But I think the older I get, the more I realize it really doesn't matter, like, Sure, you need a few good tools, uh, but from there on, like, stop obsessing about every single variation of an SSL strip or whatever, and just do your thing and just, just you know, learn to trust your instincts and, and not always, because honestly, for years, I was just obsessing on, on Gearspace uh, or whatever, just watching every review possible and like a lot of times we're like this is a game changer saturation plug and out or whatever and i would try it and be like you know what it's okay you know it's it's it's, (laughs) nothing there's no one plugin that's going to turn a bad mix into a good mix let's just say that yeah of course yeah and it's funny it's like sometimes you just have to i mean you have to learn that the hard way i think you have to spend that time obsessing about things in order to realize like oh wait a minute none of this actually made that big of a difference or if you know if you actually do spend the time to like open up the 10 different SSL plugin emulations you have and compare them against each other, you're going to probably get the same results and realize it didn't matter. You know, you could have saved yourself some money, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. And just, just so I, I'm clear about it, I don't mean you shouldn't obsess about this craft because I think we all are overtly obsessive with it and you kind of have to be if you want to compete at a high level because 
I'm even if I have a day off or if I'm not working or booked to do something, I'm literally on Pro Tools, just trying different techniques. You know, like I've EQ'd a kick drum like no less than like two million times, but I'm still there <laughs> trying different curves on a kick drum or different parallel processes. So so I'm not trying to tell like you should be obsessed with audio if this is something that you genuinely genuinely want to get into professionally. And I think that's what makes us great engineers or strive to become is that constant quest to learn and get better and realizing that, you know what, six months ago, I wasn't as good as I am now. And I think I'm always trying to go for that feeling. You know, when I listen to mixes I did even a few months ago, I'm just like, wow, you know, I really kooked this thing or, or I figured out this new way of doing this like so much better, you know? So definitely don't want to discourage anyone from being obsessive about the actual craft but I just don't think it's worth it to sit there and worry about this new plugin and that new plug. Like, check it out, demo stuff, see what works, see what's cool. But you're not going to lose the gig because you didn't use X person's API console. You're going to just just do a good job. And you, you'll see amazing mixers do huge records with like a $29 Waves like SSL strip and they crush it. So, yeah. Of course. Yeah. And definitely I'll, I'll add to that as well and, and say that like, yeah, there is no problem in obsessing over the 10 different SSL emulations that you have to see if there actually is a difference. You may find that there is, that you may find they're not. And if you do find that there is, then now you're armed with that knowledge of when you might use one over the other. And then that makes you a better engineer because you have that tool to get you the results sure. faster. So there, there is that for sure. But but yeah, there at the end of the day, there really isn't a single plug-in or outboard device that it's going to transform a shitty mix into a great mix. It's it's not like that magic pill kind of thing. Yeah, 100%. And for me, yeah. just keeping the plugin folder small has actually accelerated my workflow because, you know, when I'd start a mix, I'd be like, you know, just I just want to get to work, you know, but I was finding myself like spending an hour auditioning like six different, like of the same 1176 compressor on X thing, you know? and And like you said, like spending that time on a day off to figure out when you need to call up on that piece of equipment or plugin, you know exactly which one's going to do the right thing for you at that given moment is great. But, but it's literally such a vibe killer to actually be doing something important and, and then take two hours auditioning, like 18 compressors, you know? Yeah. There's like the separation of work time versus experimenting time yeah, or learning time. Yeah, I am 100% with you on that for sure. Yeah, and it, sometimes, yeah, having that minimal palette of plugins that you can go to, when you know those plugins really, really well, you're going to get super fast at, at using them. And so there is that advantage to just like working with the tools you really know and having that limited set. So you're not, yeah, you're not wasting time like learning the new ins and outs of a GUI for a plugin, uh, you know, just for the sake of having something different, you know. Exactly. And like what I was mentioning when I got that 001 and started making records uh, for local bands, I literally just had that and a Focusrite Octopre, you know, literally that's all I had in the arsenal. Uh, and by the, and what's cool is by the end of the day, you, you, you'd be like, okay, well I have this issue. Like, let me fix it with like mic placement or changing the, you know, so it just makes you like the less tools you have, the more efficient you get at like understanding issues and how to solve them quicker, you know? Mm-hmm. And then obviously, you know, getting some great gear was, was awesome. Uh, but having less choices, 
I think actually made me better. And then when I went into these gigantic studios, it was literally a breeze for me to get good sounds, you know, and, and people were like, wow, you know, like, who is this guy? I've never even some no name guy coming in here and just making this stuff sound huge, you know, and just getting the biggest drum tones because it's like, okay, well, I, I, I made a small studio in Ottawa sound pretty huge. So when I, I'm, I'm walking into these places and I have like high compressors and just the world's best microphones, like for me, it was a joke. I just plug stuff in and do what feels good. And it just came out so great because I had nothing before and I was doing everything I could to kind of fake, fake it to sound like a huge studio. So when I got to a huge studio, it was like absolutely a breeze, you know? Yeah. And you probably still use that SM7 on the vocals or, you know, 57 on guitars or whatever, right? Yeah, <laughs> <Same>. exactly. <laughs> yeah. I think that there's uh there's a definitely an allure to go into these big studios because they have all this gear, but like, you almost, if you're going to do that just to like have the time to play with fun gear, it's like book a day before the actual session to play with the gear. Don't, don't experiment with it in the session because then you're doing the same thing as you would going, going through all your plugin lists and, you know, doing it that way. So yeah, for sure. But, but honestly, it's so much fun. Like I've, I'm so lucky. Uh, those, I worked with this band called Parkway Drive and they, they usually have a pretty healthy budget for recordings and they're, they're literally like, dude, we just want the best results possible. So you just pick any studio you want and like, we'll, we'll, we'll do stuff like have like 14 or 15 days to record like 10 drum tracks, you know, mm-hmm. like that kind of stuff where we can literally afford to sit there for three days, like, like just having the best time ever coming up with like gigantic tones. And, and for me, I mean, like that is like not going to be your average experience when you're on the clock. But for me, that's just, taught me so much uh, about, uh, you know, but just coming up with cool sounds, you know, because like when else can you sit there with like $3 million worth of gear and just have the time of your life? You know? Of course. Yeah, that's, that's the dream for sure. <laughs> well, you talked about um, getting back to guitars. You talked about how these days you've kind of moved more towards working with the Kemper. Um, is that more of a, is that just more of like a, a workflow speed creativity standpoint or do you just feel like, like, do you feel like the, the sound of the camper is just as good as a real amp or, or close enough? Like what, what's your take on that? Okay. Like my feelings on the camper is like I said, I grew up cutting my teeth, miking cabs. I love it. And, and there's still definitely a magic to that. It's just the speed that we need to work these days. You know, like I'm not always working on these high budget sessions. Like a lot of, a lot of my years were spent on the clock, people breathing down my neck, expecting fast results, you know? So I Kemper just kind of made sense. And, and like, I'm not going to lie. Uh, the first time we tried these Kempers, they, they were sent to the band uh, to try out. And uh, so I had no, no commitment to it whatsoever and literally zero expectations. But we actually brought a whole bunch of heads down there, like Soldanos and 5150s, and we actually profiled them because we wanted to use our own profiles for this specific record, you know? And, it, and I, I mean, I don't know if you've ever used the camera when you're profiling it, it gets to a point where it, it you know, kind of finishes its learning kind of pattern. And then there's a button that you can A, B and go back and forth to like literally what's playing in the room and what the camper's output is. And, and I was in my own studio, turned around and had people flicking it. And honestly, like a lot of times I couldn't pick the two, you know? So at that point I was like, you know, 
there's so, there, there's just something to it. I'm literally sitting in my own studio that I've been working in for 12 years and I know pretty well. I mean, does it sound exactly like a real amp? No, but it sounds darn close to a recording of that amp, if that makes sense, because it samples the whole the whole chain, yeah. you know? But to be honest, like what I'm loving these days is um is using real amps with load boxes and then using IRs in front of it too. So that kind of opened up my eyes to it because there's just something, I think, more magic happening and just something a little less grainy in the mid-range about uh, using a real tube head with a load box and capturing it and then putting an IR in front of it, you know? So I'm just been loving that. Yeah, I mean, definitely the cabinet makes a huge impact to the sound. So, you know, having that front end of the amp and then being able to quickly experiment with different cabs and get a different sound with the IRs, like that's going to drastically change the sound and give you a lot of flexibility there as well, right? Yeah, exactly. And like stuff like the GGD Zilla cabs and their Mesa cabs, like you can just sit there designing like the coolest cab combinations, all perfectly phase correlated, no issues. You know, you blend all these cool mics and like room mics. Uh, yeah, they really did a good job with that. Uh, but just, just there's endless amounts of amazing IRs. I'm not uh, only talking these guys up, but, but yeah, you'd like, I'd, I'd say literally the, the cab, Changing a cab makes a vastly bigger difference in the resulting tone than even a head. Like, obviously, heads have all their unique tones, but uh, and I uh, mean these these uh, these load boxes are doing a pretty good, you know, way of capturing the soul, and then and then later it gives you some cool uh, flexibility down the road uh, because on a, with a Kemper you can't really do that kind of whatever built-in cab IR is assigned to that patch is kind of what you're stuck with. So. Mm-hmm. This is cool. And then, like I said, like before with textures and stuff, like you can just, you know, change cabs for a certain section of the song or down in the, in the mix stage or the post-production stage, which I th- think is pretty cool. Yeah, it's, it definitely offers a lot of flexibility being in digital with guitar amps because, yeah, like you said, you can customize the chorus or whatever and, you know, get, get a different sound and you didn't have to spend the time miking up that amp and, you know, getting it, it takes so much longer to do all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, and I think for the player, just because, it, I mean, I don't know if it's like, psychological because they just always grew up playing with tube heads but i think from what they tell me because i'm not a guitar player i'm a drum geek but from what they tell me it just it just feels right where the kemper still sounds good but just Mm -hmm. didn't feel as good so whatever if it's going to make them play better and have a funner funner day at the studio then that's cool with me and it's just cool to have real tube heads right there and just use it like back in the day for sure yeah, the technology has come so far that it's like now there's so many different ways to do the same thing. And uh, it's it's amazing. Like even recently, I was, I've been trying out, I don't know if you've messed around with the uh, Tonex plugin at all. That I came up I've heard a lot about it. I've heard a lot about it, but I haven't had a chance to check it out. Yeah, so so recently for my students in, in my membership, I was doing a shootout between the Kemper and the Tonex. And it blew my mind how close they actually would get to each other. And the Tonex I got for like 50 bucks. It's crazy that that technology is that affordable now. Um, so, yeah, it's just like there's there's this whole world of new opportunities for people that people didn't have before. That's amazing. One hot tip I'll mention since you're kind of talking about that is uh, I've been kind of just checking it out preliminarily right now. And it's kind of blowing my mind. And it's called uh, NAM, N-A-M, which is like Neural Amp Modeler. Yep. And this is like an open source uh, plugin you could just get for free and then everyone's just uploading uh, all their captures and it's just always it's using like the GPUs of your C- of your computer to uh, basically machine learn 
these tones and and man, it's unbelievable. Like it's it's not like a refined GUI yet. Like the interface is kind of you know, but but all that matters is like the tones that I'm I'm seeing come out of this thing. Like is wild. And like I've actually been pulling up old songs that I've worked on with the Kemper patches and then reamping them with this thing. And uh this thing's kind of blowing the doors off some of that stuff. I've seen that plugin. I haven't used it yet, but I when I saw it, I was I remember thinking like, yeah, this looks very stripped down. It doesn't look sexy at all. But the fact that like I've, the results I've heard from it have been amazing. Yeah. And just I mean it is just so cool. It's just an open source project and everyone's just helping refine it and get it better. And everyone's sampling their heads and and then putting them up on, I think it's called like Tone Hunt or something, is kind of where like the repository of uh, where everyone can go and upload and download stuff. And you can, it's like fully searchable and, you know, you can look up any head and it's probably there. And then what's actually cool for us is this technology can also model any analog device. So people have actually been experimenting by capturing like, you know, different preamps and tape machines and stuff like that. But the only thing to keep in mind is it's, uh, you can only sample something in one state, you know? So really, Mm -hmm. so let's say you'd have to sample your Neve preamp at gain setting 10 and 11 and 12, and these would all be different profiles. So, I mean, maybe one day they can kind of do it so it's more dynamic and all, all these impulses or whatever you want to call them live within the sub plugin that will you know, in real time, switch between uh, settings, but uh, oh, it's still super cool. You know, I, I think yeah. I think I'm excited to see where the technology will go. Well, it's it's funny that you mentioned that because I recently was reading. I think it's with the newest version of the Kemper software. They've added a new feature that basically does model the actual knobs on your on your amp heads, and like it's supposed to now react a lot more like the actual head as opposed to just profiling a specific tone. Obviously, your preset is going to get you a specific sound right away, um, but but now you can profile kind of like the general head sound and and you know have all the EQ knobs at your fingertips and that kind of thing. So so it's, yeah, it's, that's really cool. It's crazy that it's getting to that level. Yeah, we're we're spoiled for choice nowadays. It's nuts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when it comes to guitars, obviously. We've been talking about like uh, kind of like big big rhythm rhythm guitars and that kind of stuff and getting that big sound. Um, but when it comes to lead guitars, what's your normal approach with lead guitars versus rhythms? Like, do you are you the kind of person that just like typically changes a pickup or a head or like what what's that approach look like for you? I mean, usually always a different head. You know, like especially you just need any help you can to just get out of the same sonic signature as those rhythm guitars. You know, so. So yeah, I'd say number one, new head, different guitar. Um, yeah, and just, I, I mean, leads is kind of weird because you can go anywhere from like of such a variety of uh, lead parts. So uh, you can have a lead that requires a lot more gain than some other leads. So it's kind of a tough one to answer in that way. But but yeah, definitely uh, I like to always, you know, audition different heads, you know, if it's available to me. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, another big part of like the metalcore sound is having a lot of precision between instruments and, you know, like everything sounding super tight and, you know, often you'll get bands that are just like very technical and you got to make it, you can't make that stuff sound sloppy. It's got to, it's got to be super tight and locked in. Um, so I'm assuming that editing probably plays a big role in the productions that you work on, right? 100%, you know, and, and, and I just want to also preface this by saying that I've, 
you know, been a lucky guy and I got to work with like, I know I'd say probably some of the most talented drummers and musicians in the world, but it's, it's just a, a matter of what the industry is calling for these days, you know, like it's just to be competitive and, and it's, it's just something that you have to do, you know, and I don't think it's uh, a bad thing. I think it's, you know, for, if the, for this type of music, you know, I would never edit so hard on maybe some other genres of music, but it's just kind of a mandatory thing. But that being said, like, you know, when I, it all kind of starts with the drum edit, obviously, because everything's going to be tracked after that. So that's kind of, kind of define how, what the approach will be for the rest of the record. But I mean, I do try to, when I'm editing drums, I don't just blindly, I mean, to be honest, like sometimes a certain band will just tell me straight off the bat or the producer will be like, we need everything on the grid. Maybe you get these millisecond leeway either way, but everything's got to land right on the grid. And a lot of that has to do because the whole record has been recorded over a bunch of program MIDI drums. And so at the end, when the drummer goes to record this stuff, it has to, everything's already locked to that, you know? So you, you actually don't have a choice. And for me doing it that way is actually super fast. Cause I don't have to even think about it. I just chop, chop, chop and go for it. You know, for me, what I prefer to do is kind of like a more like artisan approach to, <laughs> to completely editing drums, which is literally sit there, zoom right in and be, and just kind of like bar by bar, kind of understand what, what, what was the drummer kind of doing here? Okay. You know, like I see that they're a little behind here and a little ahead of there. So I'll kind of always try to maintain what they were originally doing, but then just kind of slowly put that on the grid, you know? I mean, that being said, I do have kind of a hatred. I, I'd way rather hear a drum hit slightly late than slightly early. I don't know if it's, that's just me. <laughs> um, other than may, maybe sometimes in a fill, you know, it might add a bit of tension or something like that. But typically, like a slow, oh, sorry, a, a slightly laggy hit will just feel more groovy where like a, a really rushed hit just sounds like a high school band or whatever. It's not the most eloquent way of saying it, but, uh, but yeah, essentially what I try to do is just kind of see what the drummer's doing and try to master vibe. And, and then usually when I, I'll edit the first song, let's say of the, of the record, I try to establish a methodology that, you know, I and the producer and the band or just me and the band, if it's just us, will kind of all kind of feel good about and agree on. So typically, uh, you know, I'll sit the drummer down after they've done their, their takes and, and, uh, and just I'll get them to pick, pick a section of the song and I'll be like, okay, let me cut this up the way kind of my instincts tell me it should go. And then we'll just have a quick uh, listen back. And, and, you know, the usually like nine out of 10 times, they'll be like, man, that sounds great. Keep doing, keep doing what you're doing. Sometimes I've had people be like, man, it's just too rigid, you know? Can you, can you just, you know, please chill out a bit? And I'm like, cool. <laughs> so I know, keep doing what I'm doing, but maybe, you know, just a few, a, a little bit more leeway each way, you know? And there's sometimes people who want or be like, want a more robotic, you know? So then it's like, cool, I'll just go back to like brainlessly, you know, <laughs> tap to transient and, <laughs> and just get it on the grid, you know? Yeah. Well, I guess it depends on what's going on in the music too, right? If it's like, you know, more straightforward rock, then there's definitely a lot more flexibility there than something that is very, you know, busy on the guitars or whatever, right? Where everything's got to be super locked in and you know, mm -hmm. something like proggy, for example, like that has to be tight. You don't have that space there. Yeah, but, exactly. Like I worked with a band called Auras. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of them. Uh, yeah. 
same drummer as in Intervals, which I actually also tracked with. And I mean, Nathan's just like one of the best drummers you'll ever meet. But yeah, it's just the kind of music that just needs to be super locked in. And uh, I mean, you know, they, they don't mind uh, me going for it. And it's just what the music demands, you know? For sure. And I, I kind of agree with you too about drum hits being a little bit later and, and, and that being better than super locked in sometimes or ahead of the beat. It's uh, it's funny. I, was, I don't know if you recently saw the, uh, that Foo Fighters concert that they put on the other day where it was like they announced the new drummer, uh, Josh Freeze. And, uh, and it, for a band like that, like it was, it was, it was very interesting to watch a new drummer in that band because Josh Freeze is a very technical, like perfect guy, like a session musician, amazing drummer, hits everything right on the grid. But to me, like, even though he was playing like the exact same notes, note for note as like a Taylor Hawkins, it felt different. It, it felt like just a little too rushed to me and it felt uncomfortable. Whereas Taylor Hawkins has more of groove and it's like a little behind the beat. So I totally understand what you're talking about with, with that and uh, agree with that. I think that that's sometimes it's just like the, the it's like a sign of the drummer feeling it more and just getting into the music a little bit more as opposed to like feeling nervous about it or so. I don't know. I don't know. You know, but no, uh, I totally get it. Yeah. It just, honestly, all I could say just gives me the heebie jeebies when, when it's just rushed, you know, and, and when it's just laid back, it just feels better. That's all. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as far as editing, we, we talked about editing drums and, and mm-hmm. I'm assuming that's kind of like your first thing that you edit and then everyone else is like, do you edit before you, like if you were recording drums, do you then edit the drums first before recording guitars and all that? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's what I meant about it, the, the drum edit kind of setting the precedent for the rest of the stuff. So yeah, like drums and bass actually go fairly rigid with, and then I actually let it breathe a bit with the guitars, funny enough. Like uh, um, just something about that kind of gives you an illusion of, of some of the groove and, 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 and it actually really tricks the listener into thinking it's not that edited, you know? And a lot of times when, if people are freaking out right off the bat, cause they're just hearing the click and the drums with no context and, and they're just like, man, this sounds like a robot. I'm just like, just give it, give it a little time. And then, and then, I mean, there's times where I'll just edit the guitars super hard and mainly just not, mainly not editing, but just being a bit more demanding about the take we put down, you know? So I actually don't love editing guitars per se, uh, I mean, obviously chopping the noise, you know, like getting that super cool, cool mutes uh, during chops is, you know, uh, a byproduct of editing. But typically, I'll, you know, like open chords and when they're just kind of flowing through, like I don't mind when it's a bit not perfect, you know, as, as long as the double and then subsequent guitars are with that same uh, kind of style, that's fine with me. So, yeah, I don't like try to go crazy. Like I know some people like, you know, turn on the, whatever it's called on pro tools, like the elastic audio and start going to work to me. Like that never sounds cool. Like if it's, if it's something that's that tragic, I'll just, you know, get them to do it again or copy paste parts. Like I'm, I don't mind doing stuff like that, but I'm typically not taking slicing every note and, and doing it that way, you know, unless it's just something that, it's like down the road and I'm mixing a song and it just, there's no other way to do it, you know? But, gotcha. and honestly, these days, like there's times where I'm recording the guitar parts because they're so complicated, like a bar or two at a time. So by the time we get to that point, there, it's, this doesn't need editing because we've literally only put down takes that are absolutely perfect to begin with, you know? 
Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. That was actually going to be my next question is like if there was any steps that you were taking during the tracking stage to reduce the amount of editing you need to do later on. But I guess, yeah, if you are doing it in chunk by chunk or like smaller bar by bar, um, you're you're obviously focusing on getting the best performance in those moments. So it's kind of eliminating that need. Exactly. Like, honestly, it's a bit of a bummer when it, it's never me that wants to do it that way. Like, I don't mind chunking things up, but like, okay, let's take it like verse and the chorus and whatever and give you give a chance to tune all the time and things like that. that that's cool. But the problem is, and it's to no fault of the actual musicians, just music has become so complicated and like these time signatures and, and the parts and everyone's trying to outdo each other. Like literally these poor musicians, you know, like, and it's all written on like software. So like, it sounds great when you just hear like a MIDI instrument play these parts and then it comes down to them actually having to play them and it's like so hard for them to do it you know so literally like recording is almost like the first time they've ever really you know played them to to that extent so it's just shocking to them i'm like dude no we're we're just gonna have to take this part (laughs) apart and like i don't like it at all but sometimes it's just literally having to like mute everything and it's just them and the click and it's just them going like one sweep or one arpeggio part or whatever it takes and like to me, that's like the most soulless way to work. But it's just honestly, it's it's just the way of the world. And you gotta you gotta just do whatever it takes to to get the job done. You know? Yeah. Do you ever track things at like slower tempos just to make it easier for the player and then speed it no, up? No, I've, I've never, I've never, I've never gotten that cheaty with it. So yeah, yeah. I, I've definitely seen some people do it. I've never worked with it myself that way, but I, I could I could see the benefits of it to some degree. But I'm kind of of the same mindset of like, I, I think as a musician, I would feel more proud of myself knowing that I played the part, no matter how many times it took me to get it. You know, there's like, there's that, that element to it, uh, making sure that the musician feels proud of the stuff they're recording and that it wasn't just like them pieced together sometimes. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, like I'm super into cheating, but I've just, I've just never done that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, there's so many different ways to do it, I guess. And, uh, Yeah. I, I I think it's funny. I was talking with uh, Matt Greiner from the band August Burns Red. He's he's the drummer of that band, and uh, and we were having a very similar conversation about this when it came when it came to like editing drums. And you know, basically what we what we kind of came up with in the end is that like it's just it's so much easier for us to edit music these days than it is for us to learn how to play the instrument properly sometimes, it, because the technology has allowed us to do that. So because of it, you know, we just lean so far into editing sometimes that you know we're that's just the fastest way to get the result and get the band in and out of the studio and get the record done. Right. But, um, so you have to, you have to kind of get good at the cheating, but at the same time, it also encourages the musician to get tighter after the fact and, you know, really refine their process afterwards. Yeah. I've had band members tell me that all the time. They're just like, ever since we tracked that record, I actually became so much better because it's just them basically having something that, that's perfection and then they can just emulate it. And by the time they go on the road, they're actually like machines, you know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, getting, getting back to it, it's just literally like people don't have the budgets to sit there and, and do this stuff to get it. And even if you did, you still wouldn't get that result, you know? So why not edit? It's like, <laughs> and, and what's funny is like sometimes the, these drummers will record these incredible drum parts and actually takes longer for me to edit the song than it did for them to track the song, you know? Yeah. There's definitely that element of knowing what the musician is 
is and isn't possible or capable of doing and just leaning into whichever works fastest. Yeah, exactly. Whatever it takes to get the job done. Yeah, man. Dude, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, it's it's been great learning more about your process and and your philosophies on all this stuff. So, um, I want to just say th- thank you for being for taking the time to do this podcast. It's it's been very very informative. Um, no worries, if pe- man. If people want to learn more about you or even potentially work with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, you can. I have a website that desperately needs updating at uh, allbuttonsin.com. and um, I'm also on the gram and on Facebook, and I could be found that way. I think. Yeah, for sure. Well, speaking of allbuttonsin.com, I have to ask, how did you manage to get that website domain? It's the best best domain ever. <laughs> Thanks, man. Uh, honestly, I don't know. I, I figured it would have been taken, but uh, actually back in the day, I, uh, my buddy and I were thinking about starting a punk rock band and I was an, obviously a geek and I was like, let's call it All Buttons In. And then I started Googling. I was like, there's no band called that because obviously, you know, it, it would take like a real geeky engineer to even figure out what that means. But and I was like, when I started the studio, I was like, you know, I think I'm just going to go for it. Yeah, I don't understand. Whatever. It's cool. <laughs> Dude, I love it. You probably get so much traffic just from having that, I think, now. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, this has been great. I, I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to do it. I, no problem, so man. I really yeah. enjoyed it. Thanks. So that was my interview with Dean Hedgechristu, and I really had a lot of fun with that. We covered a lot of ground there, everything from, you know, taking a DIY approach to your career versus taking the quote-unquote traditional path of internships. I, I definitely feel like him and I see eye-to-eye in a lot of regards when it comes to that kind of stuff. And I also enjoyed talking about things like driving your gear, like preamps and compression and stuff like that. Stuff that a lot of people will tell you is the wrong way to use that gear. But sometimes the wrong way actually gets you the best results. So I liked diving into his process behind that. And I also thought it was really fun to get into his guitar process. And I thought it was interesting to hear how he has been switching over from recording live guitar amps to now relying on tools like Kemper or the uh, free Kemper-like plugin that he talked about too. And I think that that's a really cool thing that that plugin is available. Um, I would definitely recommend you guys all check it out. If you've never used the Kemper before, I think you're going to be blown away when you have a plugin like the one that Dean was talking about here that can actually profile your amps. And I also think it's amazing that there is a repository of different guitar sounds because basically that means that even if you don't own those specific amplifiers, but you're looking for a specific sound for a record, you can simply download these sounds and essentially have that guitar amp in your software and get a great sound with it. So yeah, I think the technology has just made things so amazingly accessible now, and there's no reason to not have great tones. So using a lot of these tools that Dean was talking about here today, I think will help you get great results fast. So whether you work in heavy music or not, I hope that you were able to take some great information from this episode and learn a bunch from it. And if you're looking for additional help when it comes to creating pro-sounding recordings and mixes with your tracks, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That is a website where I have a ton of great resources designed to help make the process of recording, editing, and mixing your music easy. And one resource that I want to point you to is my book. It's called The Mixing Mindset. That is a book where I break down the process of mixing step-by-step. So if you're confused about what what to do in order to make your mixes sound nice and clear and polished, definitely make sure to check that out. Once again, that's called The Mixing Mindset. That's available at MasterYourMix.com. 
Or if you're looking for even deeper training and you want one-on-one personalized support and coaching throughout the process, like I'm talking about getting feedback on what is specifically needed for your particular mixes, like what tools to use, what settings to try, all of that kind of stuff, so that you can ultimately make your mixes sound as good as your favorite recordings. If you're looking for help with that kind of stuff, that is exactly what I cover inside of my coaching program called Amplitude. If you're interested in learning more about that program, make sure to visit masteryourmix.com forward slash Amplitude, and on there, you'll get all the information about the program, and there's even an application if you're looking to join. I only work with people who I truly believe I can help. So if you're looking to finish your record or your singles, or you've got a big project coming up, or you're just looking to optimize your process and your speed so that you can ultimately make your music sound as good as you've always wanted it to, make sure to check out Amplitude and apply for the program, and I would absolutely love to help you out. So once again, the link for that is masteryourmix.com forward slash Amplitude. So with that said, we've reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the very end. And I'll chat with you in the next one. Talk soon. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.